0: everybody, welcome to yet another episode of the Fraud Boxer Podcast. Today I got a big one for you. I have a, a hell of a guest, everybody's favorite. I've done a lot of panels with her. You all know her. She's great. She's an industry icon. I got Diana Gaish finished with us today. So how are you doing today? I feel like I'm introducing a celebrity right now.
1: Oh my gosh. Now I don't know how to follow up after this. I'm feeling, I'm blushing. like. I'm glad people cannot see this, but I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me yeah I, I do have like a little bit of um uh of imposter syndrome right now like i don't think i'm all that great but thank you so much
0: i mean obviously we must think you're pretty great because we have you uh as our voice in a lot of places in this industry you do a lot of panels a lot of webinars uh, you are a lot of places and i think a lot of people do look to you to to get advice to hear stories to seek counsel so i think you're um not an imposter. I think you're very much <laughs> welcome here uh, and expected to be at these tables these days. So uh, I'm really happy and really fortunate that I was able to get some new time to be here on this with me today. So let's, uh, let's dive right into it. Um, I think we're going to kind of spread this one over two episodes like you and I just talked. So we're going to have two distinct parts of this. So uh, we're going to put these out about a week apart from each other. So let's start with the first one. Let's talk about you, talk about you or your company, talk about some cool stories that you might have uh, that we'll share with the audience just to get people familiar with you that might not be familiar with you and then get people um, excited about you that are familiar with you, Uh, you know, all the usual stuff. So, yeah. So let's talk about kind of how we met. Um, I think we met probably through the MRC, like is how we meet at just about everybody, uh, probably over five years ago. I think you've been at Finish Line almost six years by now. Yes. Um. So we probably met before. Maybe we didn't. Uh. But I just know that you and I just became familiar. We were always in the same circles, same uh, same pubs, and then uh, we spent some time in in Tel Aviv with the Riskify people together, uh, oh, touring the city. Yeah, that was a really good time. I, you know, I keep um, they just did the one in Boston. I wasn't able to go. Um, oh, I was there. Yeah. That's and you you met Steve from my team, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, it was actually a pretty interesting event.
0: Yeah, it looked really cool. Steve was sending me a lot of pictures. Uh, I was actually at the MAG conference in Dallas at the same time. so But I was really happy that Steve was able to go uh, in my place. It was it a was really good experience for him. So super happy that, that he was able to get that and then uh, share him with the industry. I don't get to keep all my fraud people to myself anymore. <laughs> I try to put them out front. You know how that is. But yeah. Um but you and I have done a couple of panels together a few we've done a couple of webinars together so yeah I don't want to be the star of the show here what was your opinion on those things
1: Yes I well we do go back um a long way and I I think I think we met probably 6 years ago at like you said one of the MRCs and I think it, you are difficult not to notice just to let you know even when somebody's Uh-oh. talking to you so hey you are known to have an opinion and have a strong opinion oh, I, I was gonna say it's just because which... I was
0: tall <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that's true but no you have very strong opinions and you don't you're not afraid of expressing them and most of the time we do appreciate that. So, um, but yeah, I think we've been on several panels together and it's always good conversation. I know we always have full room. We always have tons of questions, great feedback afterwards. So obviously it's kind of a good working relationship here.
0: Yeah. I think that um, you and I bring our our collective audiences together pretty well. You and I like have a a good conversation with each other back and forth a good uh, chemistry, as they say on, on panels where they, where we can, we get a pretty good flow going and I think that we get a lot of information. And I think, I think that as we've, we've gone through fraud trends, we've gone through abuse trends all the way through like refund stuff. I think we've had some really, really, really good sessions. And I know I've learned a lot on them myself, you know, like a lot of the stuff that that you were seeing on some of your, your RMA refund abuse um, I've taken back to my own company uh, and shared that internally. So thank you for that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I actually, one of the feedbacks I got after, one of our panels is that we give concrete answers. We give like real life examples, um, something that audience can literally take and go back, like you just said to your company and uh, implement whatever suggestion, whatever idea we have. And so we're not talking really in circles and just giving a bunch of words or phrases that people want to buzzword. hear. Buzzwords? Yeah. yes, yes. I think that
0: that's, a, that's a, an excellent Segue into a piece of this is, and I think we'll talk about it probably a little more in the, in the second episode. But I I do I do think that our industry is is winding up at a a place where people are hungry for for real content, uh, and real answers. A lot of these panels have been a lot of like vendors or merchants showing off their companies and not necessarily some of the things that they've actually done. Uh, which is fine. You know, I think it's like a lot of people joined the the industry over the past couple of years like coming out of the pandemic. So some of the, the easier to swallow stuff has been has been pretty well received. But I think that I think there's a focus coming in now of getting the right people on the right panels so that there's there's content, you know, sometimes you'll wind up with like a moderator and three people on the on the panel. Two of those people will be talking and one of those people will just be agreeing with everything else they're said. (laughs) And then (laughs) you'll see like afterwards, like people will talk about they'll be like, well, I got nervous, you know, I don't do well in front of people. And like, maybe, maybe the public speaking isn't the right spot, you know, and I think there's a lot of opportunity when you do the public speaking, but we are paying to be at these things to make sure that we get a lot of knowledge out of it. So I think it's really important that the guests have concrete examples as you said of of things that are happening. And I also
1: think that I also think our industry is actually quite generous even when somebody's nervous when somebody's really not comfortable publicly speaking. To be honest with you I am not. I really every time I have to get out in front of the audience you could not tell and a lot of people told me you couldn't tell but I have my little methods of how to calm myself down and focus and start talking about what I'm supposed to be talking about but I think that our industry has been very nice yeah. to these newcomers and giving them opportunity and maybe bringing them back and and validating and, and kind of respecting opinions and respecting their feedback. So I really don't think, I'm not sure how it is in other industries, but I really don't think that being afraid or not being comfortable with speaking publicly should hold someone back, at least not in this industry.
0: That's that's a good point. Fair point there. I think, you know, let's let's talk about that a little more in depth on the uh, the next episode. Uh, but for now, this one's all about you. So let's, let's talk about you. And I love this. <laughs> I
1: love talking about me. <laughs> See? That's a,
0: so look, why don't you tell your story? I mean, as, as much as you want to tell your story. Um, I know you have an interesting story. So bear as much as you want to bear. Talk about like where you came from, uh, how you got to where you're at in the fraud industry, all of those sorts of things. That, you know, I, I know you spent some time at a couple other companies as yeah. well. So if you'd love to share as much as you want, it's completely sure. up to you.
1: Absolutely. Well, a non-professional part, more personal information about me. I am originally from Bosnia. I was born in Bosnia, but I'm Serbian by ethnicity. And for those that do not know, they're lucky. There was a war in my country in back in the 90s. So I actually came to this country as a refugee in 1998. I think I'm like a real American dream. I'm one of those people that came with two bags, um, $80 in my pocket and Thirteen hundred dollar debt for the ticket that organization that brought me to United States actually paid for me. So I had they to asked start for the money back. back. Oh yeah, yes Whoa. they did. Yes they did. I was actually paying back the ticket they paid for me. But that was the part of the agreement. It was actually an organization for migration. Um, so it was an interesting journey for me. I didn't speak English, not well uh, at all. Um, I was studying German most of my life. So it was pretty interesting being here, not knowing language. Um, I already had two years of college when I arrived here. So it's very difficult getting a job when you don't know the language. But um, I'm kind of a fighter. I think when you, especially, I think everyone in our industry is kind of a fighter. We have that streak. But um, I never give up. So I definitely worked hard uh, started college i got job I, I worked very hard in everything that i do and i d- dedicate myself to everything i do so that's how it was for this as well um uh, so maybe a year or two after i came to the united states i started working for macy's i actually worked for macy's for 10 years um because oh, i live in wow. cincinnati now yeah that's why i know a lot of people from Macy's, and i worked in their fraud department i was actually reviewing fraudulent credit cards and that's how I got into this whole fraud and um I think e-commerce was just starting at the time so I started reviewing some of the fraudulent orders um, or orders that were suspicious and I think there is one funny story because I just came to United States I'm just learning English um I'm going to college I'm working as a fraud analyst and I think I told this story so many times but um one of the payment processor, or one of the credit cards had a automated address verification because back then there was no avs response when i started and that's how long ago i started there was no like automatic abs response you had to call the bank and you had to read the address you know numeric part and the zip code and then they say yes it matches or no it doesn't and then you proceed with the order so i would call this credit card and they wouldn't understand my accent so it was constant yelling zip code zip code and everybody around me would know that I am talking to this particular uh, credit card company because I'm yelling and cussing there because it cannot pick up my accent so it was really funny but that's how long ago I started in fraud and of course as e-commerce fraud or e-commerce overall grew I kind of grew with it so I always say that I was maybe just fortunate to um, be at the right place in the right time and learn so much about e-commerce and e-commerce fraud. Um, so maybe that's why I know a little bit more than some of the people in the industry.
0: That's very interesting. I think probably, you know, seeing some of the world events that are happening right now probably is giving you a little bit of uh flashbacks i guess is it might not be the right word and, but that seeing that happen all over again has got to be kind of concerning so it
1: yeah. is it is and uh it's unfortunate it's unfortunate that it's happening anywhere i i just think anyone that needs to leave their home for whatever reason is just um it's horrible Uh, but i don't know i always try to look at the bright side i think when something tragic in your life happens you have two options you can either let it hold you back or you can let it go and I decided to let it go and learn from it. And um, I'm not one of those that is nostalgic, that I want to go back, that I'm thinking about old times. Like I, I have a lot of people in my family, my my friends that are constantly talking about these old times. And I like to remember that. I go back to my home, to my home country. I consider Serbia my home country. I go back, back there every year. But I'm not that nostalgic. I, I really think of myself as like a citizen of the world. I will be fine everywhere. I have no issues living anywhere and adjusting anywhere
0: wow what a story what what an amazing story so thank you for sharing that like that's that's very 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 interesting so you're at macy's you did a decade there then what'd you do
1: yes yes uh then i had a kind of a exit out of the prod industry i worked with children with mental health disabilities for about three four years uh i worked for the County here where I live. And I was a coordinator for families that have children with mental health disability. It was a program that actually helped family get the help they need and access all of the services they need. So it was kind of a a little bit more of a case management, but more about bringing services that will make particular family happy. Uh, What was different about that program than any other traditional kind of conservative programs that exist out there is that they were focusing on each particular family's uh, vision of happiness. So it wasn't me coming to the family and say, you have to be this, this, this way. It was, how does happiness look for you? How does good life look for you? And what can we as a county do to help you get what you need to get? Um, to, to get there. So I'm going to tell you as much as it sounds different from fraud or everything I, I do, I learned so much. And I think it opened my eyes to how we are all different, but we are all the same and how you need to, you cannot judge someone just by what you see. You actually have to understand them because maybe they are happy in in, in what they do. Maybe they're happy in the way their family functions. So it really did help me learn a lot and, and I think be a way better person. It was a That's, difficult job, but extremely rewarding job.
0: That is very, very interesting to me. You know, like I um, am very guilty of judging books by their covers very often. We're all, uh, I think we're all. And I think that having... The, the way that you put that, you know, like some people are very happy with the way that that things are with their life and their family is like really important to realize. You know, you see a lot of people, especially right now in like the political climate of the world, um, where people are saying if you don't like your life, you just need to change it, or people look down on people like that are working in like service industry and things like that. I think that it's it's really interesting if you really step back. Like some people might like that. Like I, I get asked all the time. Um, Well, not all the time, a few times now that like, what would I do? Like if I won the lottery or if one of like these startups, like went big enough that I was able to cash out and like retire. And the answer isn't like retire and just run around and eat and drink my way through the entire globe is like, I would do something. It's going to sound really weird, everybody, but um, I'm really into giraffes. And I think people that are in this industry that know me know that, like, I'm really into giraffes. I have a giant giraffe tattoo on my entire upper arm. Half my pictures on social media are giraffe related. Uh, Me with giraffes, me driving far to go see giraffes. But if I, if I had like all the money in the world, first, like if it was a lot of money, like if it was like, like hundreds of millions of dollars, I would totally probably try and open like a giraffe preserve somewhere. Um, In the United States? Uh, probably not because I don't, <laughs> don't think, think they're it super. Keen. I don't think they're super keen on the climate here. But um, you know, maybe I try. There's a couple. There's a place up in Oregon that uh, I go to, and I actually pay the extra money so I can have giraffe encounters and feed them lettuce and all that. But I would totally open one of those. And if it if it was a lesser amount of money uh, could, that I could live comfortably, I would probably volunteer at a place like the one, like Wildlife Safari, up in Oregon, where I would like just enjoy being around like the work would be hard but i would enjoy being around in that environment and like caring for animals like that um especially giraffes and and being <laughs> in that that cool environment that's kind of safari-esque without getting murdered by um like you know lions and stuff but it's it's one of those things like it like those jobs don't historically pay well you know I, like these these tech jobs are the ones that pay well right now but it's not like I, fraud is my passion I love fraud like I love what I do I absolutely think it's the greatest thing for me like it's the first thing that I've ever been able to talk about for hours and hours and hours on end without ever getting tired and everything about my life revolves around fraud but if I had all the money in the world I wouldn't be doing fraud I'd be hanging out and kicking it with your ass somewhere doing dirty shitty work
1: <laughs> I didn't know that about you I really didn't I oh, mean yeah.
0: because I'm... I didn't
1: pay attention I'm horrible Yeah, I I mean
0: granted at conferences and stuff I do typically wear long sleeves. So uh, I mean usually in the cocktail hours and the happy hours I'll I'll roll the sleeves up a little bit but the giraffe one is is my entire upper arm. Um, I'll show you here because you can see it on the uh, on the video. But uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's a big piece. It's my entire upper arm. So from my elbow, all the way up to my shoulder. Uh, For those that, that, that are and it's full color everybody. Uh, done by an amazing artist. Um, at Definitely looks Tattoo. great. Thank you. So, um, yeah, let's get back to to regular life. I would you do know?
1: fraud. I do just have to say. Keep doing fraud, had, huh? I would, if I had all of the money in a world that I think I need, I do have something to say about that as well. But I would still do exactly the same thing I do because I really enjoy doing this, even though there are days I'm going crazy and I think I'm going to have a heart attack how upset I am. But... Uh, I would still do this I would just probably do it on a different level like more of a training more of a yeah
0: you know as you're saying that like I was thinking about that because one of the things that since I've started this podcast I've had a lot of joy in in having these conversations and I think it's it's a different piece like don't get me wrong like I love being a manager and leading my team and I love watching my people grow like uh, especially like Steve and KDF they've really like grown a lot in the last year that, that they've been working for me. And I'm really proud to put my people out front, you know, and make sure that like they're, they're seen for their achievements. And like, I think like you've, you met Steve, you know, Steve, like he's really great at what he does. And I'm really proud to be leading people like that, which it gives me great reward. But another thing, like it's a a different type of reward that I get from doing this podcast right here. Uh, despite like if a if thousand people listen to it or if 200 people listen to it, each episode has a different level. And I think it's it's still very rewarding for me to know that people do listen and then to do the panels and like the education piece of it, being involved in this community is extremely rewarding for me and very satisfactory. And I think that like, you know, being more and more and more into the industry is 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 giving me a whole different level of satisfaction. I already loved my job already. Yeah. But now, like I'm really, like really into it. It's taking up more hours of my life than it ever has. (laughs) And usually, I think people try and work less. But I, I, I'm trying to do quote all the things, and I'm, uh, I am enjoying it very much. You know, like it's, 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 it's pretty cool.
1: But you know what? I think lately, even with LinkedIn and with all of the social media, there is a lot of focus on life work balance, and there is almost a pressure to work less. But I, it took me a while to kind of tell myself, I don't have to work less because I enjoy what I do. This is not just a job for me. This is definitely a career for me. And this is definitely my passion. So I enjoy what I'm doing. And I do it whenever I have time, whenever I feel like it. Um, the other night, I, was, I stayed up till, I don't know, almost midnight responding to chargebacks. Even though I have a person who is dedicated to responding to chargebacks, and he does an amazing job. I did it because... I like to stay involved in all of this yeah. and I like to do it. it. It's really not a problem for me. So I, I don't think I separate my work and my life but more i don't separate my life and my passion for fraud and for training and for education and all of that so i do um i am working actually now i'm kind of self-advertising here i am working on e um, e-commerce uh, fraud training that is going to be ready probably sometimes next year earlier next year so hopefully i'll be able to share that with larger community it's going to be okay. kind of a high level intro into e-commerce fraud management but hopefully very interesting find it useful yes
0: well, when you get that ready to go, let's uh, let's have you back on again, and we'll talk about the launch there. And uh, you can Absolutely. run us through through what you've built.
1: Absolutely, Almost right. done.
0: So you were helping out the uh, the underprivileged in your local community. Uh, then what what'd you do after that?
1: Actually, I was. Um, then I started work uh, working for this company that was kind of in a fulfillment center, but had customer service and fraud. And they were serving other clients. And some of my clients were Versace, Hugo Boss, Uma at the time, and Colhan, uh, Solstice Sunglasses. MCM, NARS, Shiseido, all of these kind of big brands and uh, La Prairie, I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if you know about La Prairie, but it's a cosmetic company. It's pretty, pretty pricey. Like I think their yeah. moisturizers I really are 1200 like $1, I, I, I figure. <laughs> but I think their moisturizers are like $1200. So, extremely high risk. Uh, companies. So I worked there um, for about three and a half years, pretty much built um, fraud screening, kind of was a rule-based system back then. Um, so that was a really interesting job because I had a portfolio of about 30 different clients, and they were from all over, from phone companies, catalog companies, because it was a long time ago, you know, people sending mail-in orders, all the way to Versace, which is super high-end, um, a, a high-risk designer. But it helped me learn how risk looks differently for different clients, how it for, for different stores, for different brands and, and industries, and how you can actually adapt and adjust same fraud screening solution to many different um, different brands. So I think that's where my thirst for this fraud knowledge kind of started, because I spend most of my time reviewing rules and playing with rules, adjusting them, adjusting them for 30 different companies. It's quite difficult than adjusting them for just one. So it was really interesting, but I think it gave me kind of a unique perspective of understanding how this broad screening can look like for different companies, how risk looks like. And one thing that was really interesting that I've learned at that time is how for um kind of a fast fashion companies, Fraud is quick, fast, a lot of orders, high velocity, low dollar value, value, and they try to place as many orders as they can to get through the system as fast as they can. For high end brands, for very expensive designers, it's very much thought through. They do take their time, they establish history, they build this history within a merchant, and then they try to, of course, commit fraud. So it was completely two different types of fraud, but it's, it's kind of the same e-commerce, same merchants um, in the e-commerce world. So that was one thing I learned.
0: That but was after interesting.
1: It, it was it was really interesting. And I, I kind of learned a lot. And even back then, using the fraud, uh, rule-based fraud screening systems, I was thinking like, how could I just use this and have it automatically adjusted? So I don't have to go through these rules every time and make the adjustment. And a few years later, we have machine learning. Fraud solutions. Yeah. Maybe I should have protected that patent. Like uh, it's my idea, probably <laughs> wasn't. But maybe I should have protected that. But then I went uh, to work for Barclays Bank. I was assistant vice president of prod uh, quality for Barclays US. I'm gonna tell you that was extremely, extremely difficult job. I
0: bet. Not
1: not just because it's banking; it's financial industry. There is so much red tape, uh, and it is so difficult because there's there's so many moving pieces in banking world that especially quality part and ensuring the quality is where it's supposed to be it was very difficult for yeah. uh, for me um it was very challenging but i, I think guess- that, that
0: yeah that's that's why i think a lot of people are like why can't we speed up all this this old bank stuff and i think people just don't realize the amount of regulations and red tape and like any money laundering compliance that has oh, yeah. to go into like every single thing. If you can't just, there's a reason why your Venmo is an instant, you know, like there's there's a lot that has to go into it. And there's a reason why there's so many like upstart banks and then so many of those upstart banks start to go away because it's, it's a lot to like start a bank. And I don't even want to pretend to know, I just know what I need to know to do what I do in payments. And even that is a lot, even our compliance that we have to do on our side, granted, we get to offload a lot of that to our processors and our acquirers. But there still is a lot of, of things that we have to do on our side. It, I couldn't even imagine being an actual bank.
1: It, and I do not even know, probably not even 10% of what it takes to start a bank. I really don't. I only understood that part about fraud, a little bit about collection. But rules and regulations are, there, there are so many. It is so it's very well regulated. It's heavily regulated, but there is reason for it. It's not just to stop fraud and risk. It's actually to protect the consumers as well. So everything is there for a reason, of course. Um, but you're right. Once you have a solution, that solution in a bank is usually there to stay for a very long time because it's difficult to change everything. There are change management teams. There are groups, subgroups. There are probably hundreds of people that have people that have to review a particular solution and even in order to even decide if somebody's going to do plc and implementation does not last uh 6 months or a year it lasts a couple of years but i think that's why once you're in a banking system you're you're at that's that's done yeah, deal
0: that's your life now <laughs> yeah. but yes
1: but it was very interesting because i learned a lot of of course uh, not to forget to say the macy's is a bank as well. So on Macy's I actually had an opportunity to see chargebacks from the other side, from financial institution side. But at Barclays, I actually was much more involved in this and um, it kind of helped me find these chargebacks knowing what they do and what they expect. Being on the, the inside. It, yeah, being <laughs> on the inside, having an inside info. But also it helped me understand how the chargeback intake process looks like. And I'm a little bit discouraged by knowing that Uh information um it's just because there is a lot of automation there is a lot of clicking and i know how often you know if you take into the account that human is there sitting and clicking i'm sure that mistakes can happen much yeah
0: and and i think that like especially for like high volume merchants like i've worked with several high volume merchants that have a high volume of chargebacks and you can tell like because you could send two identical cases in and get two completely different outcomes And like, granted, there is a human element to that, you know, and I'm sure, and I'm just saying without ever knowing, but I'm sure that chargeback reviewers on the issuing side very much have KPIs that are related to speed and and items in the queue and getting those things out of there. So they're not necessarily inclined probably to make the answer always in the merchant favor accurately because they're just trying to get through their workload for the day, get their little, uh, their numbers up and make sure that they don't get fired. Just like everybody else that works in those high pressure call center environments.
1: That's, that's correct. I do also think that, um, on the banking side more than other customer service or other type of customer service, there is much more um, quality control because there are groups that are actually checking the quality of this work, You know, going back and making sure that they've done all the steps. But I also think what consumers don't understand and what also merchants most sometimes don't understand, there are also different levels of that chargeback. We do see it as a pre-notification, chargeback or pre-arbitration and so on, but there are other ways to connect to the bank and and kind of ask for that chargeback to be reviewed again without going into that pre-arbitration. If you submit enough documents, but also if you're a consumer, they have even more options for getting their money back. They're oh yeah, like, yeah. These, I so- mean,
0: yeah. I I've been fortunate enough to work at, at merchants large enough that uh, I could call, and the the banks will pick up. You know, and I could yeah. say, hey, you know, here's a series of cases. I mean, I think American Express was always pretty good at that. If you're if you're a heavy partner of theirs. Um, they're pretty good at listening to to the feedback. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get your outcome that you want. Yeah, but they will at least listen to it, uh, yeah. which I th- it like is 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 pretty nice. I don't have that luxury at the, the merchant that I'm at now. Um, we're we're big. We're, we're pretty dang big. I think we're bigger than a lot of people ever realized. We're several billion dollar merchant. But I mean, you have to be tens of billions of dollars usually in order to get the uh, the actual issuer or the actual network to pick up pick up the phone when you want to complain uh, they'll take your, you'll take your dollars, but they don't but always want to <laughs> Don't you think
1: that's a little bit unfair because if there's yes. a smaller, mer- yeah, if there's a smaller <laughs> merchant, they won't get any attention or they, you know, they will not be worth their time. So I, I think there has to be something that's going to improve quality. and.
0: Yeah. And I'm I think sure that, is, that this though. is coming up. I've, uh, I've been on a couple of like webinars and in panels, uh, more recently, I would say within the last month that have actually, actually talked about this, like, for for the little guy you know they don't really have an advocate and i think that that the this there's companies like like the merchant risk council and like the merchant advisory group the mag that are trying to give those smaller merchants a voice you know so basically getting like a a a group of them together like a a coalition of of the smaller merchants together kind of like collective bargaining and approaching these 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 networks with their grievances um i think it it, it does lead to less personalization around the individual grievance. But I think that um, it's something that people are aware of that like the the big 10 real e-commerce merchants are the ones that have the power in dictating like some of the complaints as far as policy changes go. You know, like right now you'll see like MasterCard and and Visa make changes to their overall processes and they don't always take a lot of feedback from, from merchant community. They'll take it from maybe a couple of merchants, you know but they don't take it from like the overall community. Uh, I think, well, I don't think, I hope that with these, <laughs> with these advisory groups, uh, that are being a little more voice of the customer oriented, I know Chase, um, hired a whole bunch of, of like voice of the customer people over the last couple of years. I think that they're, they're starting to realize that, you know, we're the ones, us, us SMB style merchants are the ones that are paying the, the real bills, you know? Like it's granted, like there's a couple of, of of top ten several billion dollar merchants, but there's a whole lot of like merchants my size in the middle that are doing two, three, four billion dollars a year that we don't quite have the voice that we necessarily should have in the room. Uh, even fighting for the little guy that has his little his little Etsy shop, you know, that, that just went big on uh yeah. on Shopify. And he's forging out alone and all of a sudden getting racked with chargebacks when he did everything he could. And that, that really hurts his bottom line more than it hurts like a fifty billion dollar merchant. You know what I mean? So
1: and- and you know what, I, I was always thinking that, like in fraud, we always talk about how we shouldn't be focusing just on chargebacks. We actually should be show, focusing on improving an approval rate. That's why I think these payment processors have to focus on how much extra of value there is in working with merchants. Because, for example, if I have particular payment method that is constantly allowing chargebacks and it's constantly... A, a, a,
0: denying
1: representment i'm going to be restricting more and more not that i want to is because the risk is bigger for me so especially now this is a good segue into what i do right now being uh, at finish line and the type of product we sell we will always sell because that there is such a high demand for sneakers and we will always sell but they will be getting smaller part of those sales because we, will, we have to consider them more risky because of what they allow. Allow multiple chargebacks by the single customers or chargebacks coming back over and over again uh, for ridiculous reasons. So if you think about it, if you were just to plain simple ROI, maybe you allowed $10,000 to this customer to pull a chargeback, but maybe you're gonna lose 50,000 because I had to restrict more and then using machine learning yeah. and linking these customers, I'm gonna restrict someone else. So. I think simple ROI tells you you are losing more value by allowing this type of behavior and not having quality control on the chargeback outside rather than just allowing that customer to continue shopping for another 10000 I think
0: That's a that's an excellent point like you know well we would you depending on how how busy everybody's fraud department is and and how much data analytics you have at your fingertips I think when people really start to get into the weeds on things, like instead of looking at just the products that are going out the door and what your chargeback rate is, uh, and just even like by network getting deeper into that, looking at individual bin risk by bin, uh, you start to see you will have riskier bins, you know, and and I could, I could name two of them right now, but I'm not going to do that. So the the networks don't get really pissed at me, but there are some bins that definitely have a higher percentage of opening disputes versus other bins and then a lot lower chance of winning those disputes because that's just how they choose to run their business and what's that what that causes merchants like myself to do is like you said really restrict those those bins like if I am not absolutely certain this is the most amazing customer in the world I'm just not going to take the transaction from it and that hurts you know those those big banks that are that are hoping to get these customers it hurts the customer experience from from new customers that are that are onboarding onto these, like, especially high-end cards. Like, if we have to worry about every single transaction being fraud on that particular card, and then some guy that just get his got his brand-new high-end card and wants to go buy some new Nike Dunks from you, you know, he might be having a, a worse time just because he's a new customer with a new card, you know, no history. And that's a, a product of the actual issuer side Causing policies on their end, yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Policies on their end. And I think that like, you know, there's, I think that we need to have that level of granularity around all of our business to see, to see where these things are. But I also think that when we start to bring these things to these, these people's attentions, they might need to listen. And I think there's, is, is a great example is like, there's a um, non-bank, non-credit card money company uh, that, <laughs> that, uh, that has a history of having a lot of easy claims as they call them, that they allow their customer the benefit of the doubt without ever talking to anybody to open one against it. And one of the challenges that I think a lot of merchants have that accept their particular payment method is you get a lot of claims for funky things. (laughs) And those, those claims are disproportionate to the amount of the percentage of sales that you have as a company. I think that's across the board. And I think that they have an excellent customer advocacy team, like your customer success rep at that company is usually really, really good, but I think that they are also powerless when you tell them your grievances, what they can do about it. I don't think that those people are empowered to make the decisions um, to to make a, a, a positive change at that company. Um, and I think that the I think that our voices are being heard, and I think that they look at their customer base, and they would just rather have that to try and cannibalize a credit card base versus versus the versions that are actually paying the fees. So
1: yeah, and I think we do need to use the opportunity of these communities that we have to kind of put more pressure on some of these issuers or um, payment yeah you know companies thought, that are not credit cards that I know the one you're talking
0: about yeah and i thought like when as as more business was moving online i thought they were going to maybe relax our our chargeback thresholds a little bit for excessive chargeback programs and and uh and high chargeback programs i thought they were going to move them maybe up a little bit off of it the, went the, other direction, they went the other direction which is crazy to me because we have more people than ever transacting online and and i get that we're supposed to protect every everything and, and we do i think we do a pretty dang good job i think most of us are pretty much always in compliance with that but at the sacrificing of those approval rates like you mentioned earlier you know like we have to be overly careful when if we had a little bit of wiggle room you know like we might be able to get their customers through the the pipeline a little more but they did they went the other way and i think that like a lot of times like, like like visa's a great example like their their reasoning behind doing moving it down the 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 10 basis points to, to point 0.9 was that there's all these new tools available like VMPI that they got after Verify. Um, but you, they want you to pay for that. So, and,
1: but, <laughs> but think about it a little bit. When was the time um, they changed it down to 0.9?
0: Wasn't that, it was right before the pandemic, wasn't it? it was 2019, I think.
1: It was right before pandemic, but right after changes in reason codes.
0: So yeah. I think changes oh, in reason
1: codes that happened Ooh. that kind of made made it more clear clarified or, or made it easier to understand where's the fraud where's no fraud probably made merchants win more or have less charge so i did
0: a panel years ago in 2018 i did a panel in the fall in chicago with um with another chargeback company uh and i was the dissenting opinion because my my fraud reason coded chargebacks actually went up about 23 percent when Visa made the change to the new oh, wow, Yeah, so um, I can't really explain why, but I was the only one that had a negative impact on, on that.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think it made too much of an impact, but I think for some other merchants that maybe did not know as much as you do, it did not fight it the way you've, you're fighting it, probably it gave more clarity to them, which means they were probably winning more and having less chargebacks, therefore there is less fees on chargebacks so yeah. there had to be compensated I, somehow
0: yeah and you know it was really funny <laughs> is uh it was you know they they talked about that coming for a really long time and still some of my processors that i used even years later had not updated their their reason codes to the new reason codes so oh wow yeah i was still getting 83s when it was supposed to be like uh, in their in their back end system so it was supposed to be like 10.4s you know <laughs> Always oh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it's been a really long time. But I would say that those back end systems were probably 20 years old. So uh, before <laughs> the change, so I doubt anybody was making it. Uh, and I, I I actually had one of those processors uh, in my office recently, and I was clowning on their back end system. Uh, and some of the data that they expose that is you can't really have exposed anymore. So hopefully <laughs> they, uh, they they promised me they're making a change in like the first quarter of next year. So I really hope that they do because probably shouldn't have had that type of data exposed for like the past good, 10. Good luck <laughs> to you. All right. So tell me about Finish Line, how things are going. Tell me all about Finish Line for those that don't know. Um, you guys sell sneakers and jerseys and all that stuff. Uh, tell yes. me all about it. Do your, do your whole uh, elevator pitch for us.
1: We are actually JD Sports North America because JD Sports is our parent company and they're headquartered in UK. It's one of the largest athletic retailers in the world. I honestly don't even know how many countries right now from what I remember last time it was probably 17 countries in the world that JD is present. Um, and I think we probably have over a hundred different sites because um, JD typically, when they acquire the company, they do keep the company as is and they'll continue... To, um, to have the double sites or the one site in that particular country. So I know that we have over hundred different sites. Um, but yes, we do sell athletic footwear uh, and of course apparel as well. I think recently we got even more apparel than we used to have in the past because it's just the way it's that- It's popular. Yeah, it's, it's just the way that demand changes, of course. Uh, But I've been in finish line for, like you said, six years almost now and this is, and I'm not bored yet. I'm going to tell you hey, that. Uh,
0: that's
1: I think pretty my, good. my top is like three, four years and then I'm out because I feel I reached the top and I, there is nothing more I can learn. There is nothing more I can do to help or to make some changes, but I, I am not bored yet. I really enjoy what I do. I enjoy the team I'm working with. We really have great team in our LP uh, department because we are part of LP actually, which is for brick and mortar as well as site. So, um, we are mostly experiencing bots, resellers. Um, everybody wants Everybody wants sneakers. Everybody wants to, everybody wants to resell them. And uh, one interesting thing that I see is that bots are not uh, active only during the launch events when we are selling and releasing the new shoe. But they are always active, even in the middle of the day, especially now t- when, when we are getting closer to holidays, we can see more and more activity because they're trying to get as much inventory as they can to resell. Um, to of course up uh, get the price up and resell and get some money for it for holidays, so uh, that was one of the change we we've, we've seen recently. But other than that, I would think that everybody knows who finish line is. I mean, really, do I have yeah. to?
0: You know, to- so I was in New York a few months back, and I was uh chilling in Times Square trying to find a uh a shirt that had moisture wicking because it was super humid, and I had picked poorly, uh when I chose cotton that day, uh to wear. <laughs> But so
1: you went into our JD store, into I, our I flagship you, store. You
0: have you have two stores there, right? You have a Finish Line and you have a JD. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, the JD um,
1: flagship. I, I
0: I bought. Of course. I, I did go into your. Uh, I did. So that there was a ton of apparel in there. Like I was, yes. it was mostly apparel, which was super cool for me because I needed to find what I uh, what I was looking for. I did not find it there, but I did find <gasps> a a jacket at Finish Line that I could not live without. And I did. I needed the opposite of a jacket, but it was so great. <laughs> I did buy that. It's a really cool Columbia sports jacket. Um,
1: That's how great we are. You know, you come uh, for one thing and then you buy something else because all of our product is uh, just so good.
0: But you know what I, uh, to, to, to bring it full circle, I actually found what I was looking for at Macy's uh, <laughs> just down the street. So you got, you got, I went to all your stores. You know, I, I have my
1: I, friends there too still. That's a lot of funny. great friends.
0: Yeah. So I, they, I finally got my shirts and then I totally went to a nice steakhouse wearing a uh, completely inappropriately dressed gear, but it was hot
1: and I didn't care
0: and I paid the bill. So it doesn't matter. Well, I yeah. didn't pay the bill. Somebody else, a vendor paid the bill, but you know, we paid the bill collectively. Oh,
1: okay. okay. Well, You know, you know sure how, you know you how partic- that is. I'm sure you participated in some way.
0: I, I participated in running the bill up. That's for sure. <laughs>
1: well, that's good. Maybe they you wanted know.
0: that. You know how I am, but, uh, the, I think that, that sneakers are super interesting. For me, I it's not really my cup of tea, but there's there are other things that I like to collect. I like to collect like band posters, like, especially for concerts that I've been to. And I like to go to small... I like to see big bands in small venues. So I try to buy posters when I'm there and I'm not always victorious. So I do buy those like types of things on eBay and pay way too much for them. Um, so sneakers, I understand why people do it. I just don't think I would ever want to give somebody a $1,000 pair of Jordans at Christmas that I know they're probably never going to wear. Uh, but that's, that's just me, but I know that there is a massive community and I have a ton of friends. Maybe I should get one of them on here one day to talk about it. But for people like you in your position at your company, um, it's probably beneficial that there is this demand for this product that you don't have to worry about things sitting on the shelves very, very long.
1: Absolutely. And we actually like those customers. They're very good customers. They're very loyal. We see them coming back and buying new products, but I'm going to tell you, I was actually surprised. I thought I'm going to see risk. I thought I'm going to see fraud uh, when I started first time, but I never thought I'm going to see this, the fraud on this level. And and this type of demand and how creative and how sophisticated this is. And and I, I think in the last few years, it even grew more uh, where there's a huge demand, especially for some of these limited um, quantity products. But I was really surprised to see the level of risk that we are facing. I mean, I worked for Versace. The, those are dresses for 5000 $8,000 dollars. And I see more risk and more sophisticated risk in a, uh, sophisticated attacks on um, sneakers than I did on some of the high-end designer bags or dresses or shoes. So I, it was really kind of a interesting and shocking to me, but I think I'm doing the best I can to make sure I keep these people at bay and stop them.
0: Yeah. Um, do you happen to have any, like, a couple of, like, stories, maybe a couple of just even fun um, case study things or anything you could give us?
1: It's kind of interesting that when it comes to fraud, traditional credit card fraud, they really don't have that much, because again, we do have a good vendor that stops these. So we really don't have any like wild and crazy stories. There are customers that are attempting and sometimes they're attempting so many times in so many different ways, changing and manipulating information so often that I feel sorry for them. I'm like, should I just send them a pair just so they can stop? Uh, <laughs> of course we don't, but I, I was tempted a few times just to pick up the phone and tell him, hey, okay, I see you, don't do it anymore. I'll send you a pair. Just like it's, it's just now. not
0: gonna work. Just give not up, gonna work.
1: But yes, um, we do see um, a lot of attempts Unfortunately, we really don't have anything too crazy. Uh, I'm not going to knock on the wood. I hope I'm not going to jinx myself, especially now before holidays. But what I do see is a a lot of other creative ways of getting that money, of making a financial kind of win on there. And uh, I did see a lot of. Account abuse and account creation abuse. There is one particular guy that I always talk about him. I call him a birthday boy. Um, It was several years ago that I saw him creating multiple accounts and putting their births a day apart for each. uh, So he's trying to age the accounts. It was, but you know it takes time for the account to age in order for you to even get this birthday card. Yeah. but he was very patient he went through this for quite some time in a very sneaky and sophisticated way that uh, I didn't catch him and I found him because we started declining him he just got too greedy I guess and we started declining him so I started looking at the orders and I'm like why this customer has so many orders and why does why are they such a low dollar amount? Because I always talk in my kind of webinars and trainings or anything that not only high dollar orders are fraud or potential risk, low dollar orders are potential risk as well. Because if your average dollar amount is $180 and suddenly you're getting $5 order, I would look um, into it. Um, and especially when I talk about my KPIs and my key risk indicators and everything, anything that is, that is an anomaly, it's an indicator of risk. So whether that's high dollar amount or low dollar amount, you need to determine what's that anomaly for you. But for me, this particular low dollar amount was anomaly. So I started digging and we started looking for the accounts, started doing linkings and we find quite few. So we call him a birthday boy because he was continuously using and abusing these birthday codes and birthday uh, promo um, gifts. So of course, we found him, we blocked him, we restricted him. I still remember his name. I actually remember the address where he shopped. So I every once in a while, I go through all of the orders and try to look for that name and that address just to see if he is still there. He's still trying. He's, he's still trying? He's still trying. It's been probably three years. He's still trying. So birthday boy definitely deserves some birthday gifts. i wow. fortunately, he's not going to get it from us. But that's kind of one interesting thing. And then a lot of interesting things happen with, um, because I am part of LP, which covers brick and mortar, a collaboration between us and stores and how do we work with our LP team in stores. You know, somebody who is maybe buying something online, returning in store, and then trying to claim they didn't get it. We do work with our team on um, on fields to get these cameras, to get videos and uh, prove that they actually did return. Um, a lot of gift cards, scam. you know, people calling into yeah. the stores and saying, hey, um, CEO, give me a gift card. We actually can capture those because we we monitor gift cards being loaded, gift cards being on um, balance inquiry down and them. So it, we kind of make a full circle. Yeah. So I think it's actually a really good match that we are part of LP team because we work really closely with them.
0: On the gift card thing specifically, do you guys um... – Do you guys tell the staff not to sell gift cards over the phone? Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we have specific rules and guidelines over what type of, how gift cards have to be issued. And I don't think that anyone from us, from our corporate will ever call the store.
0: Do you, uh, we
1: need, we can reload the, we can load the gift cards in our.
0: Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Do you guys have a lot of internal, um, abuse on gift cards? by chance?
1: Uh, we actually don't have too much fraud and gift cards at all. Um, some very, very low. But what we have done several years ago, I want to say it's been probably four years, we changed our PIN code um, into very, very high number of digits on a PIN code. Mm. And then we did validate that PIN code is being checked. Through our payment processor so when you do balance inquiry you have to put in this pin code when you do purchase you have to put pin code in so they can't
0: just be ripping it based on what they saw because i I used to see the bots that would would hit the number that they originally saw in the balance checker waiting Uh for that card to be activated
1: they They do that we see them do that but here's how we kind of mitigated that type of risk we monitor balance inquiry so if there's a spike in balance inquiries from the specific location or whatever is my risk indicator, we will identify that, pull it out. And then we're going to look into that particular gift card. We're going to look to check if it's been used. Got it. If it has yeah. been used, we can do our magic behind it and stop it. But I think for gift card fraud, because gift card is considered as cash transactions so yep. a little bit different. So rules and regulations around those transactions are a little bit different. Uh, you don't see the product until customer calls and says, Hey, I had a gift card and somebody used it. That's already too late. So, there is really no proactive way to do it. So, for me, the best way to handle this was the monitor balance inquiry because you can see bots attempting 10, 15 times and then failing 10, 15 times and checking that inquiry.
0: Yeah. Uh, so have that's you guys, the best point? Have you guys done anything around um, like bot fingerprinting? Like, that's some stuff that we're doing where. You know you can see the same bot trying to hit the the actual balance checker and you can just block that actual bot fingerprint itself so that bot can't even can't even it won't even be able to see your site anymore
1: yeah as you know i'm big on cross department collaboration so um i have team of three and if you have companies our side, you can't really handle fraud with team of three. So I do rely a lot on outside other departments, not just my fraud team. So we do work a lot with our e-commerce operation team that has the working relationship with Akamai, which is our fraud detection. So they are actually on my alerts that see balance inquiries. And anytime there is an alert that's triggered when there's an anomaly or where there is a risk indicator, they do go and do their magic on their end. Uh, either that's blocking or working with Akamai to put additional endpoints and whatever. Um, But yes, our e-commerce operation team does see the same alert as I do. They take their steps to block what needs to be blocked, but we are trying to stop them from like ever coming again. But as you know, they just create another one or they use another one, they change NAPI and here we are again. So I think definitely job security because they will never stop.
0: Very, very interesting. All right, as so we're going to wind this particular episode down here. Let's talk about your quick, uh, just wrap r- like rip off your uh, top three trends that are happening and any comments you have about those that are happening specifically in your world.
1: Refund fraud, refund fraud, refund fraud. <laughs> oh,
0: yes. Okay, that's that's um, pretty easy, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I think definitely refund fraud is number one. Uh, it's been number one for a while. And I think I've been monitoring it for like four or five years now before it even became so... Um, kind of trendy and popular and before it grew to be what it is right now, even from the fraudster side. um, I don't know that there is like a greatest way to handle this type of fraud because that definitely requires a whole lot of collaboration within your organization. It does require for you to look at the entire transaction from the beginning to an end. So from the moment somebody types that finishline.com or jdsports.com, all the way down to customer actually calling or filing the claim within your uh, customer service or claim department, whatever way you are taking that claim, whether that's online or via phone call. So you have to monitor the entire life cycle of that transaction and try to ident- identify, where are the gaps? What can you do to close those gaps in order to see smallest movement? So everything from making sure that you do have a correct address so you can eliminate any process issues or not delivery because of the wrong address, all the way down to checking that customer, screening customer for repeat orders uh, or re- repeat claims, um, screening repeat offenders and abusers of the policies that you have. I know in refund fraud, there's a lot of empty box. There is the tracking ID manipulation. So it's extremely important to cross Um, to have a cross-functional team and train your customer service, train your refund claim department in understanding truly how this fraud looks like and how to tackle it. Um, Second one, ATO or account security, I will say, not account takeover. Uh, We do monitor account logins, so we really don't have that many issues with account takeovers. Um, We have attempts, of course. But I think identity authentication of the account create is something that merchants are really not focusing on. I really think that this has been going on for a while. Like the abuse starts at the account create where there are multiple accounts created. I just talked about my birthday boy. And I think like industries, some other industries like, I don't know, gaming industry, ticketing industry, and some other industries already have account takeovers and account create managed uh, because that's their type of business. They have to have that kind of identity verified, but for merchants merchants that sell products, I don't think that identity authentication was always in- that important, but I think it should be. And we were just talking the other day about how soon enough there will be money laundering piece on the merchant side as well. And it's just a matter of time when money laundering rules and regulations will be required yeah. for merchants as well I think, because uh, of especially, these multiple accounts creation.
0: Yeah, and then like marketplace places, you know, like they already have a little bit of AML compliance stuff, but I think it's going to yes. come up more into the forefront, um, Absolutely. you know, so.
1: And yeah. then the third one, bots. So that's my first refund, second yep. ATO, and or account security, and third one, bots. Uh, bots are not going to go anywhere. I think they're just going to go to- oh, yeah, they're going to get-
0: well. Exactly. And that's one of the things I think our jobs too, you know, as we slide our our roles into this abuse prevention thing is we have to make it just really annoying to monetize our sites in any way and get them to go somewhere else. They're never going to go away. You just got to get them to go away from you.
1: I'm really tempted to create an email that's going to, that we're going to send them and tell them, hey, nice try. But no, not this time. Unfortunately, we don't do that.
0: Uh, well, I think we're gonna wrap up this particular episode here, and then we'll have you back next week. So just uh, thank you again for for your time and telling your story. I think there was a lot of useful information there, especially around how how some of the things work and how you've addressed some of those. So uh, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me and thank you for saying all those wonderful things about me. Now I'm gonna go and gloat a little bit.
0: You better. you better said <laughs> like Jordan said.
1: I'm going to put it on LinkedIn, Jordan.
0: Oh, I can't wait. Don't forget to tag me. (laughs) Uh,
1: Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye.